Well, it's a joy to be with you today. Um, I have not met most of you, but in fact, I was here a year ago in July and uh, had, had the joy of, of speaking and celebrating, and I'm grateful to be, to be asked back once again. I, my name is Christopher. I'm a priest in Chattanooga, um, and actually the church where I serve is just outside of that in Cleveland. Um, but I've known Preston now for a few years and count, count Father Preston as a dear friend. And so it's, it's good to be with you all and actually meet so many of you who I didn't get to meet uh, this last time. I, I know Father Preston to be a person of deep kindness and generosity of spirit. And so I trust that in all sorts of ways, this community is kind of taking on some of that shape, some of that character as well. But despite knowing him to be a person of such deep kindness, it is not lost on me that he's asked me to give the sermon on Trinity Sunday. And in some circles, some circles that I've been a part of, Trinity Sunday is also known as Guest Preacher Sunday. Um, this is a Sunday, a day in the church calendar uh, that at least some preachers, some ministers of the gospel would rather avoid. But I did go back in a sacraments catalog of sermons, and I found that you've not had a guest speaker on this day since 2018. So I thought, well, I guess I need to give Father Preston the benefit of the doubt here. It's not personal. Uh, I know it's their anniversary weekend. So what to do, right, when one is tasked to deliver a sermon on a day in which we celebrate the mystery of the divine life? And look to the doctrine and the language that we've come to formulate and use in the church, a doctrine that points us toward the fathomless and wonderful mystery that is God's life. Well, I noticed today in the text, of course, we begin in the beginning, we started in Genesis 1-1, and our gospel reads, if you noticed, until the end. And so, from our Old Testament to our gospel reading, everything is covered, the entirety of the history of the cosmos. So I thought, that's a good place to start. It's Trinity Sunday, let's just go for it, right? Let's just cover everything. The doctrine of the Trinity, I did listen to those, uh, those sermons, and so I'm going to let Father Preston handle that, but just know that the doctrine of the Trinity is not a mystery. It points to the mystery. You can and hopefully do know the doctrine of the Trinity. We confess it as a church, um, but if you're fuzzy on it, you want to talk to me about it, we'll take 30 seconds and I'll run you through it. But it does point to the endless mystery that is God's life. And the church said at a certain point, basically, boy, Every bit of our language is going to fall short, but we think this is the best we can do. And so that's what we've done. And so from that, we have the doctrine of the Trinity. In Genesis, in the beginning, right, the Spirit broods over the face of the deep. The divine word of God goes forth, and all is created. Creation, all that is, finds its source, its possibility, and its actualization in the life of God. A life that is obviously and apparently not turned inward, right? This is why we have something and not nothing. I've heard one person say it like this. 
the divine life was such that God said, I'm just having too much fun to keep this to myself. And thus God makes space for something other than God. We don't often think of it this way, but even time itself is created. If you notice, a lot of the ways that we talk about God, we talk about God being in eternity. God is God's own space. God is not contained by anything. There is God, and there is everything else that exists. Time itself is a creature. It's a space, if you will, in which all that exists does so. And time has the shape and the movement that it has because God's life is what it is, right? There's a tripart structure, right? There is past, there is present, and there is future. There's a beginning, a middle, an end. Because this is who God is, all in all. There's a past, a present, and a future because God is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Again, think of the scope of our readings today. We covered everything in the history of the cosmos. It's good for creatures that God's life has these dynamics, the shape and the movement of God's life uh, that we've, we've come to know as revealed. For instance, the dynamics of God's life. Well, God doesn't change, right? We know this, we hear this, we read this in the Scriptures. But of course, neither is God's life static. God's life is dynamic. Just as God is one, but not lonely, just as God is three, but not divided. God's life is lively in ways that makes our lives livable. God's life is mysterious. I've already said this. We can't look at anything else and draw analogies back to how God's life works. We try it all the time, though. We can't draw any analogies back to how God's life works in ways that aren't more misleading than they are illuminating. God's life is endless and endlessly mysterious. But Scripture is clear that God's life isn't empty or needy or boring or listless. God has purpose, but God isn't driven by some purpose that's acting on God. Just as His nature is the same as His character, who He is to us is identical with who God is for God's self. God is not conditioned, but God. That's why I said God isn't in eternity. God is God's own condition. God is the condition of all conditions. But even as such, our God is not out of touch. God's life, the oneness of God's life, encompasses all of us, but without suffocation, without control, without manipulation. If you've had an overbearing parent, an imparent, a parent that tries to encompass all of your life, you know what that, that is, that kind of being manipulated <laughs> Controlled at times. Sorry, I couldn't look any of the teenagers in the eye when I said that. That's not an indictment. (laughs) Father names source. Son names identity. Spirit names liveliness. But God is truly one. Not merely three in close intimacy. God is actually one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So God isn't divided. And I recognize this is a sermon and not a lecture, so why would the indivisible nature, God's oneness, 
why would the life of God be good news for us? Well, in short, because it means you cannot separate or you can no more separate Jesus from his humanity than you can separate Jesus from the Father. Again, though, how's that good news? So in John 14, one of the apostles shows or asks, rather, Jesus to show them the Father. He says, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. One translation says it like this. If you just show us the Father, that's all we need. And Jesus responds, have I been with you all this time and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And I think... If we're honest with ourselves, we're a lot like this disciple. Yeah, 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 Jesus, right, right, I got it, I got it, I got it. But but show me who God is. Show me who's going to be at the end of all things. I mean, look, I'm not going to project my kind of, my upbringing and the stuff that I went through onto you, but, but at least... For myself, for so long, I feared that there was more to the story than the Lord revealed in Jesus. I feared there was more to God's life than is revealed in Jesus. I don't mean more in the sense of, yeah, yeah, we know God's life is endless and an endless mystery. But I mean, I guess in some way I kind of thought, but we're probably going to get a different kind of God than the one we got in Jesus, right? He's so good. God's not going to be that good. Not in the end, right? Our theologies, our prayers, our songs, and interpretations of Bible stories often reveal a picture of a God that is divided. Things like the Father has to pour out His wrath somewhere, so the Son incarnate has to step in. And in His mercy, Jesus takes it for all of us, deals with that anger. Or like I said earlier, a suspicion that at the end, when the veil is lifted, whatever veil there is, is lifted, and we see face to face, when we see clearly, that we'll find a God that looks less like Jesus of the Gospels and more like the terror that some of us repeatedly responded to in our calls for salvation and rededication. And if you didn't grow up in a church like I did, that doesn't mean anything to you. Great. Thanks be to God. But if you did, then you know what I mean, right? You're like, yeah, yeah, I I know who you are, Jesus, but that's not what I'm scared of. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul, in this incredibly stunning Christ hymn, which I I was struck by that even this morning as, as Jenna read the Old Testament text, like just how beautiful it is. Colossians 1 has that same kind of just gorgeous rhythmic poetry Paul writes about Christ as the image of the invisible God. In him, he says, all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace the blood of the cross. That is to say, I can't say it any better than Paul, but I'll say it differently. The God who is is love. And because of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, we do not need to fear a God or a version or a side or a dimension of God that is not love. God's life is undivided. 
And God is not at war with God's self. There is not a side to God that says, boy, I'm pretty upset about some things, and some of you are going to have to deal with my anger. And another side of God that says, no, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. God's life is undivided. In the church, quite some time ago, the way that the the way that the church begins to speak about this is to say that God's life is simple, not simplistic, not, not, not dumbed down, but God's life is simple. It's this recognition that we are endlessly complex. Our lives refract in a million different directions through the brokenness of this world, ourselves, our families, our hearts. We are divided. I mean, come on, you and I do things all the time that we don't want to do. There's all kinds of things we want to do that we don't do. There's all kinds of things we do, and we have no idea, why did I do that? But God's life is not divided in those ways. God's life is simple. There is nothing at war within the life of God. In our epistle reading at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul signs off by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This communion the Spirit brings about is how Christ's grace draws us into the love of God. The triunity of God shows itself precisely in that we are affected, that we are turned outward. We're, we're opened up What I mean is the God who is, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a life that is full. This is a life that has no need. You and I were not created out of need. It's incredibly liberating because if God needs us, if we're created, as some people say, because God needed worship, a God who has needs is a God who can be manipulated. But God cannot be manipulated. God can be trusted because you were created out of nothing else than the sheer gratuity of God's love. God's life is a life that is so full that it is nothing but the giving and receiving of love, of good gifts. To have love given and received, there cannot be one. For that, to not, for that love to not close off in itself and shut everything else out. There can't be two. In God, we find the one triune God, the one that we confess as lover, beloved, and love itself. A God who created not for need, but because God was having too much fun not to share God's own life. Because that's who God is. A God who shares his own life for no other reason than that of love, turned outward, because that's who God is, a love that necessarily shares, that gives, that is roomy, creates space. That same life affects us. That's what I mean when I say the communion of the Holy Spirit that draws us into the grace of Jesus and the love of God. It affects us by way of opening us out, turning us outward, not collapsing inward on ourselves, but turning us outward in ways that are true. I mean, look, 
There's ways of being turned outward towards our neighbor that leaves us burnt out and emptied in kinds of terrible ways. We, we may fall victim to this. We may know people who fall victim to this. But the Spirit, the communion of the Spirit keeps us from that. It actually opens us out and, and up toward our neighbor in ways that are true. Remember in 1 John 14, I just referenced it a bit ago, where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, just a few verses after that, in that same chapter, Jesus gives the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he says it like this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth. That's how Jesus names the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who is our advocate. The communion of the Spirit can only lead us in ways that are truth because this is the Spirit of truth. And the truth about us is that we are created in the image of God, which means, among other things, that we are created from, in, and toward love. I mean, I'm sure you've all heard the saying, right? To err is human. But of course, what we find in God is that sin is not what makes us human. Sin is precisely what is inhuman about us. In Jesus, we find the one who is both the call of God and the creaturely response. To say it differently, in Jesus, we find the one who is both the perfect image and revelation of who God is and the perfect image and revelation of who we are. We are created from, in, and toward love. Anything else is less than life. Anything else that's less than being turned in love toward our neighbor, anything less than being made roomy, hospitable in the truest and deepest of ways, costly ways, the ways of love, is less than human. It's beneath us. Our gospel text, one that we're familiar with, right? The Great Commission. Just a kind of side note about the Great Commission, it's, it was sort of mind-blowing to me several years ago when I was in a, a course, and we were looking at scriptures that were familiar to all of us, too familiar, so familiar we kind of inoculated ourselves against reading it with open eyes, like, yeah, yeah, I know it, I know the rest of that. And we were looking at history of interpretation, and one of the things that's interesting about the Great Commission is that we always read it top to bottom. So we hear the Great Commission, and we were like, go forth into all the nations, right? Preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And you were like, yeah, that's it. That's our charge. But what's wild is you've got about, I'm going to say conservatively, about 1,700 years of the life of the church that here's the Great Commission, not from top to bottom, but when it gets to that part that says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, that's where they say, oh, that's us. Because, of course, who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to his apostles. He's speaking to his disciples, and he says, you, with me here on this mountain, go, therefore, into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And the church said, that's us. Now, I'm not bothered by people who say, I need to go into all the world and preach the gospel. (laughs) That's great. But what's important and what was so often missed was we actually need to be the kind of people who are taught by the life and witness of the apostles. 
What's the shape that our life should take? We are them, those who need to be taught. The them being made into disciples. The them who are being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and being taught to obey everything that Jesus commanded his apostles. Obedience, I know, has has a bad rap for many of us. But that's only because we work in narrow and broken imagings of power, primarily defined by, at its worst, and most insidious master and slave dynamics. We bring up obedience now. I mean, at this point in the sermon, we're talking about the Trinity, the life of God. Why bring up obedience after all this talk about the nature and the character of the triune God who's revealed in Jesus Christ? Well, simply because Jesus is Lord as the one who obeys. And our obedience, the communion of the Spirit that is bringing us into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, drawing us into the love of God, is to become more and not less ourselves. So I told you there's no competition between God's life, right, within God's life. And if we can get past that that hurdle, the next hurdle we need to get past is the realization that there's also no competition between God's life and our life. I I don't know if, if you heard this, but for the longest time, I had the sense that God needed to kind of annihilate as much of me as possible for me to be the kind of disciple that I needed to be. A competition between my life and God's life. But there is no competition between my life and God's life. Not truly, because remember whose image we are made in. Sin is what is inhuman about us. Yes. Does that need to be taken care of? Yes. Do we need to be transformed? Yes. Do we need to be sanctified? Yes, of course. But who we are, who we truly are, that is not in competition with the life of God because that is grounded in God's life. An early church father says it like this, the glory of God is in the human person fully alive. God desires for all of us to be the fullest expression of who we are, not in some kind of trite or silly way. I mean in the deep sense. I mean in the ways that like, I mean, language falls short, right? But in the ways like the people who love you the most and the best know you to be. Do you have any people in your life who who are able to, whether they say it like this or not, or just live it with you in a certain way, who live with you in such a way that kind of calls out the truth of who you are? Like, so just just under a year ago, he'll be a year in in three days, but I I became a father. And so it's been a wild and just incredible journey. But I have a friend who's a bit ahead of me in this, and he's got a few kids. And one of his sons a few years back was, oh, I'm going to guess like four maybe, maybe even younger, but but at least about four rather. And he was working on something, and he was working on a deadline, and you know how it is when you're stressed and you're upset, and anything can set you off. And he's working, and his son comes in, and he's doing stuff, and he just wants to play. He wants his dad's attention. And my friend kind of barked at him and like told him, like, get out of the room. Like, 
I, I have got work to do. Like I told you, do not come in here, right? Real stern, that kind of dad voice, whatever. So that night, he's putting him to bed, and he's tucking him in, and his, and his son says to me, he says, Dad, if someone had heard you earlier, they, they, might, think, they might think that you're a mean dad. But I know you're not. I know you love me. I mean, one, devastating. Please, dear God, don't ever make me go through something like that. I mean, that cuts you right to your heart. But what his son did was he called him. I mean, this is what he was thinking. Of course, the kid's four years old. But he called my friend to the truth of himself. Dad, who you are, if I could have a little bit of interpretive leeway here, Dad, who you are is not at odds with who God is, not truly, and I know that. Called him to himself. There is no competition, not truly, not ultimately, between our life and God's. Thus, our obedience, which, by the way, our obedience is gift in and of itself. We don't conjure that up. Our obedience is our being liberated into the very life of God, becoming the love of God in the world. Jesus says, remember, I am with you always, even to the end. We don't just live in the truth of that promise. Our life in Christ is incorporated into the actualization of that promise for the sake of the world. Jesus, his body, with us, for us, in us, to the end. We are actually being made into the body of Christ, for the sake of the world, until we see him face to face. And as Scripture says, when we see him, we will be made like him. And let me just end with this thought. In our seeing him, in our own transfiguration, at the end, whatever that looks like, it will include us in the triune life. We will be so baptized in the Holy Spirit. One of the prophets says it like this, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But what is there to the sea but waters? We'll be so saturated, so baptized in the life of the Spirit of God that we'll know the Father just as the Son does, and we will be known just as fully. And I hope you can hear that for the very good news that it is. Amen.